0: coming up on this episode of the courage to change
1: at the end of it i asked her you know what she wanted from me and i was like i know that that's kind of a weird question to ask somebody who's dying but like part of your part of your legacy is me you know so i i want to make sure that i honor that so what do you want from me and she's like you got to take care of yourself you got to you got to fix the weight you got to you got to be healthy and be happy and stop beating yourself up and i went okay
0: Hello, beautiful people. Welcome to the Courage to Change, a recovery podcast. My name is Ashley Lowe Blasting Game, and I am your host. Today we have Will Certain. After Will's mom passed away in 2017, a lifetime of suppressed memories and events came flooding back in. What felt like a normal childhood with humble beginnings began to change. Suddenly, he was seeing everything in vivid detail defending his mother during an attempted sexual assault, witnessing Russian roulette at the kitchen table, or being around for a long list of traumatic events will turn to food to deal with the trauma, eventually climbing to 400 pounds. He tried everything he could to change his trajectory, including appearing in a local Biggest Loser style competition where he lost 88 pounds in 12 weeks. But without understanding the psychology of food in his life, the results did not last long. Eventually, Will did the hard work of understanding food's place in his life and digging into the trauma he experienced growing up. He's since spent intentional time working through his complicated grief and even becoming a grief facilitator in the process. Will sees the world with a totally new outlook, living his personal mantra, your attitude determines your altitude. Will's story is amazing and one that I can personally relate to. Food can have so much guilt and shame and emotion wrapped up in it. His story is one that I think many of us have struggled with. I am so impressed with the hard work that he's done and continues to do. And we're so lucky to have a chance to speak with him. I really enjoyed our time together. I hope you send some love and encouragement his way because he deserves it. Without further ado, I give you Will Certain. Let's do this. We gonna have some fun. Yes, ma'am. Will Certain. Ashley. Thank you
1: for coming
0: on. This is so fun.
1: Absolutely. Glad to be here.
0: So, okay, let's get started. Will, where, let's talk a little bit about your background. Where are you from originally?
1: Um, I was born in Florida and my parents, uh, during the eighties decided that th- there was more money to be made in Indiana and the RV industry. My dad was in construction and things. And so we moved to Indiana and I've been in Indiana for the better part of my life for most of my life. So I live in Northern Indiana,
0: Northern Indiana. Okay. And, um, were your parents are, well, first of all, are you an only child?
1: Uh, no, I've, I'm, so I have a, uh, a full sister and my dad's been married three times. So I have a half sister that's older than me, myself and my full sister, we share the same parents. And then my father was married after my parents were divorced. So I have two step-siblings as well, a sister and a brother.
0: How old were you when your parents got divorced?
1: 13. Uh, well, the actual divorce, I believe, was when I was 14, but the, the separation started right after 12, early 13.
0: What was it like growing up in your house? It was... <laughs> up until the divorce. What was... Let's, let's take me to the divorce.
1: I always like the reason I chuckle is I always tell people I had like this leave it to beaver life when I was younger, I was in this little town in Northern Indiana called Shipshawana. And it's quite literally one of the largest flea markets on the planet. And it's a huge Amish population. So it's this super quaint, really conservative valued area where everyone's just, you know, like, hi, neighbor. And there's all these white picket fences. And, you know, mom, I would come home from school. I lived three blocks from the school, and I'd walk to school, and then come home from school, and mom would be making dinner with an apron on, like legit, wow. Leave It to Beaver, like childhood until I turned thirteen, and then it all it all changed at that point.
0: So up until I mean, and I know some of your background, I'm I'm sort of balking only because I know I know how it what happened. So you're saying that from zero to thirteen, it was like your parents were happily married, you like everything in the house was calm.
1: Yeah, I mean, it, I know that as an adult now that there were underlying yes. things.
0: Right, 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 right.
1: But when I was a kid, I, I mean, hell, I thought I was just like, I would ride my bike and I had a paper route and we would yeah. play in the leaves and piss my dad off because I got leaves all over his yard and like just, you know, things like that. Yeah, as we did. Yeah. And I, I just had this like really wholesome childhood and my wow. parents really didn't. Fight. They're, we were poor. I mean, we we were not well to do whatsoever. We lived in a, a very small rental home uh, where my sister and I shared a room, and that was after we upgraded to that from the trailer. So it was not, you know, there wasn't anything um, significant about it from a from a lifestyle standpoint. But right. my my life was fine. I, I was wow. I felt supported. I felt good. Other than my dad is somebody that's uh, born and raised Southern Florida. And um, a different generation, and yeah, yeah. <laughs> he was very strict in a lot of ways, and he had some interesting ways of of showing love. So there were pieces of that that are in there, but outside of that, I mean, it was a it was a good childhood.
0: Two things about that. One is that they say, and I only know this because of my own children. They say that from zero to five, those are the most formative years in terms of wiring the brain. So yep. kudos to them. It sounds like it's. I mean, you know, considering again, we'll get into what happened, but considering what happened, the fact that that was relatively calm and you know at least at least that foundation and probably speaks to why you are you know in part able to be so resilient and come back from what you eventually come back from you said your dad showed love in interesting ways can you tell me a little bit more about that
1: he was the youngest of three boys okay three very stereotypical southern early 60s late 70s boys so they were sports and Hard work, and you start working in the fields, and they were doing, you know, raising cattle. and My grandparents went to dairy, and they 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 just grew up rough. I mean, you're talking about cowboy boots and mud, and they just started beating each other up at an early age in the fields. You know, just normal brotherly things, but in a really kind of male toxic way, I guess is the best way to say it. They didn't. My grandmother wasn't really. She was the the wife in the house, and they were on this farm. And Grandpa and and the boys were outside working, and it it was just a different generation, a different time. And so I always credited him for that piece. But the way that he would show love to me as as a son, it was very different with my sister. You know, as Mm -hmm. as a daughter, it was very daddy's girl. But as a son, it was you're never tough enough. I've always been the chubby kid and overweight, and he would he would tell me that and uh, Mm -hmm. say things. You know, like you gotta. Don't eat so much. You don't need, you know, or why do you got to have two drinks? Why do you have to have two drinks? Why do do you always got to do that? Um, uh, Why are you going back for another cookie? You know, just things like that, that as an adult, I look back and go, okay, I see that he had good intention. I don't want my son to be chubby, but the shame that was, that was inflicted at such an early age. Really stuck with me. Uh, even uh, really one, one really specific thing that pops up. And it was I was playing with toys in front of him while he was watching football, I believe. He called me a big headed bastard. And I, and, and I, he, he meant it in this kind of his personality. He meant it in kind of like a, like, oh, get out of bastard. the way. You know, like, oh, get your big head out of the way, you know, that yeah, type yeah, of thing. Yeah. But it stuck so much with me because I was already chubby. I already felt bad. I already felt different than kids at school.
0: And big head doesn't even necessarily mean fat. So it's no, like, not it's at all. Interesting what what sticks with us.
1: Yeah, and I I just yeah. I remember being like, oh okay. And you just it was just this like dismissive type yeah. of approach to things. So it was it was his way of of uh, parenting, and it that kind of stuck with me my my whole life.
0: What happened at thirteen? Because a lot happened.
1: Yeah, my mom and my grandmother, her mother, were. The very best friends in the world, and my grandmother um, had diabetes and some chronic issues that she had struggled with, and she passed away suddenly. Prior to that, uh, she she had taken essentially anything that you would call a, a life savings, and she had been gambling with it. Uh, this is back when cherry master machines were allowed to be in like the Moose Lodge and the Eagles, you know, the like foundational bars. And so my mom spent a lot of time with her at those places. And it uh what it ended up turning itself manifesting into was when my grandmother died, my mom kind of clung on to that piece where she would go and she'd sit at the master and she'd have a drink. And there wasn't really an abusive piece of the drinking part of it. The abuse was really in the gambling part. She was trying to keep up with my grandmother. My grandmother had this like retirement money that she was using. And like I said, we were not. We were not wealthy. And so my mom was doing things as an adult. I know that she was doing things that were, you know, like getting credit cards and stuff like that, that my dad didn't know about and all sorts of things behind the scenes to pay for this gambling addiction. And then when my grandmother died, it just like imploded because she... She used that as a coping mechanism. Like this is the thing I did with my person, and now my person is gone. Yeah, she would just sit yeah. at the same cherry master with the same drink and just drink and play and drink and play and no no money in her pocket, but just pulling from resources that she shouldn't have been pulling from. So that was kind of the starting point. And of course, that my father found out about that. and then, um there was a lot of debt from the gambling that caused a bankruptcy that caused. The beginnings of the divorce. And then she went from, you know, from a grief standpoint, she went from losing her mother to losing her 14 year marriage to being single for the first time and having to get a job for the first time. She never, she had like little here and there jobs, but she was pretty much a stay at home mom. And so she, there was a lot that just hit within probably a 16 month period that, uh, that I, I, looking back, I'm, I'm amazed at how uh, resilient she was in it even though it it kind of consumed her at the time.
0: What did you think with like, you're watching this from this, you know, we always, we have our adult perspective looking back, which can often be very different because we understand things we didn't understand. But at the time, there's a perspective, a 13 year old perspective. What's the 13 year old perspective at the time?
1: You know, there's, I kind of, I knew there was a lot of stuff going on and that there was a lot of stuff I didn't know. And I felt, I think I think that's why I'm so ch- just blatantly transparent with everything now as 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 a father. I talk to my daughter about everything. I tell her every, I don't hide things from her. If money's short, I'll tell her. If I, yeah. I feel like I can't afford the new $400 bat that she needs for softball, things like that, I what? I um yeah, it's insane. So I, I I if I felt like that was an issue, I would just talk to her about it. Like, yeah. Yeah, yeah, "Hey, yeah. this is, this is something we're going to have to work on." So, but I think that where that comes from is that I felt Blindsided by some of it, mm. but then not not so much. I mean, when she was when she was playing the cherry master and drinking with my grandmother, I was playing pool ten feet away from her. She right, would take right. us. So were... I was with her at the family places. You know, yeah. So I I saw that piece of it, and then I also saw this massive separation happening between my father and her. And I and even at twelve years old at the time, going into thirteen, you could I could kind of see it coming. I remember my dad telling me that he was leaving, and he was like holding Tupperware. <laughs> At least this is the way I remember it. He was holding, he was holding Tupperware, and he was going to be moving to this new apartment, and they were separating. And I remember him. T- I was sitting on my bed, and I was playing my guitar. I remember being relieved. Because it there was it was just so toxic and tense, and like I didn't know when they were going to yell at each other or when he was going to like be angry about this new thing or or yell at her about this new thing, and then some of that stuff was being projected onto myself and my sister because of you know they they didn't have anybody else to yell at, so we would yeah. get the the you know the back end of that piece, so I remember being just overwhelmingly relieved at thirteen, like okay, I guess I'll be the man of the house now, you know
0: what did you? You, you know i'm sure that feelings came up as this happening even if it's relief what were some of the things so so two part question right what were some of the things you started to use to cope even healthy or not healthy and then how did you see mom start to cite you know spiral
1: well it started with when dad moved it was all of a sudden it was every two weeks on the weekend i'm going to be with dad and the rest of the time i'm with mom and there was something about his presence, even though they were not good, it was not going anywhere great. There was something about his presence that I think kept her in a certain bubble. Mm. Um, and then as, as soon as he was gone, the bubble was gone. And she, um, there would be times where I wouldn't see her for three or four days other than when she would come home drunk and go straight into her room or... <laughs> grab a snack, of course, from from the kitchen, whatever's in there, food wise, and disappear into a room to pass out. And so, I, I it was a very almost truncated. Like I saw the spiral, but then it just like disimploded impl- all how, at once. How within. fast are
0: we talking? How fast did you go from this like Betty homemaker to your mom's in full blown gambling and alcoholic alcoholism?
1: goodness probably i i'm looking back i mean it's so hard to recollect like yeah. what the time yeah. would be but i i think that the overall time was probably a two-year period from okay. from you know end to end but it felt like it was a, a light switch right. because it it was we were going and we were spending time with grandma and then grandma died and then boom, boom 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 and it was just one thing after the other and then all of a sudden i was like i have to get my sister ready for school yeah. i have to feed my sister dinner i have to make sure that the house is clean so that when mom comes home she's not upset and she doesn't yell um just you know it went, it was That's this like whole that. transition of things coping wise i started i me, i i always coped with food i don't know if that was um I, I think it was something that i learned really really early on from a principal in school oddly I'm not going to say his name in case he ever listens, <laughs> oh, but <cool. laughs> I had a principal in school. And like I said, I went to this really small town, uh, elementary school and they had a rule that whatever landed on your tray, you had to eat or you weren't allowed right. to go out to the playground or whatever. Well, I hated green beans, hated it with a passion. And still to this day, I don't like anything out of a can. I'm not, I don't like canned food in school. Green beans taste like a can. They just taste like an aluminum can. <laughs> and, uh, he would he would force me i'd be full and he would force me and multiple other students to just sit there and like force feed ourselves stuff that we didn't want to eat first of all but we were also full and you would miss you would miss your your recess you playtime yeah yeah being shamed into eating this thing you don't even want to eat and i i actually threw up green beans all over the front of him one day and got in trouble for it and got, you know, so I I just started in an early age, like food was my, I remember hiding chips under my bed when I was a kid, like I'm talking like five years old bag of chips under my bed type of thing. Early, early age of using food as a coping mechanism. So, and then once she started drinking, there was always, there was always alcohol in the house and there wasn't prior to that. So on my 14th birthday, I did 14 shots. That's a lot. That's going to hurt. That's gonna hurt, and it was Goldschlager and and Bacardi, so it was not a great mixture.
0: Yep, that's gonna hurt. That's gonna hurt. That's gonna come <laughs> up. Uh, is going to come up. Uh, we, call yeah, that that was... <laughs> we call that, that the was... Gold Rush. Call that the Gold
1: Rush. That's awesome. Yeah, that was that was my first uh, real experience with alcohol. Um, I, I am fortunate to say that I alcohol has never been my drug of choice, but I've danced around it yeah. pretty much my whole life ever since that point.
0: Your mom, so your mom's i mean this is this is a huge spiral, and you're watching addiction and kind of a tornado picking up other things as it starts to pick up speed and momentum right and mom is you know she she's dating for the first time, so she's bringing people home i mean that 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 adds this whole other element to it. What did your mom become, and how did that shape you going? into your, your teens? Cause you know, now, okay, 14, you're taking 14 shots, but it's not alcohol that that's really whispering in your ear. W- what does this look
1: like? It was such a dynamic change between the, you know, in that, that 18 month to two year timeframe that I still had this kind of whimsical idea of what my mom, who mm-hmm. my mom was, what my mom looked like. And what really affected me more than, than what I was seeing at home was how, how, our tiny little tight-knit community saw my mom, I would start to hear things like at school, you know, because at that point, junior high kids, they pick Mm -hmm. on each other and they do all Mm -hmm. kinds of stuff. And I would hear things like, you know, I, I saw your mom up at the up at the bar last night. She's always up there. You know, and not things that it wasn't like picking. It was just things that you hear. You know, yeah. Um, I did have a couple of people that would, a couple of people that said, "Oh yeah, my my dad likes your mom. He told me all about her." You know, things like that 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 kind of painted a different picture that I didn't really know. Yeah. Because I was just at home. I started I started getting really really protective, almost to the point that it was. I mean, it was all unhealthy, but it was that protection piece was unhealthy because there's there was nothing I could do to protect her further. Yeah. But I would do things like she's not home. It's three o'clock in the morning. I'm going to get on my bike and ride up to the bar to make sure she's okay. And so here's this 14 year old boy rides his little Schwinn bicycle up to the up to the bar in, in town and i just you know burst in the door of a bar i'm not allowed to be in and go i want to talk to my mom she's back there playing pool this is a town where when you walk in they go they go billy what are you doing cuz i i was yeah. billy back then billy what are you doing here you know so it was it's not even like uh, can i help you kid no yeah. it was it's was like oh he's here again to get his mom. So it turned into that and um, got to the point where they wouldn't... A lot of our utilities got turned off at home. So we didn't have a home phone. Um, I would use our neighbor's phone, Maxine. She was this wonderful, beautiful old lady that was... She was just so caring, but in the ways that you... I I don't think she wanted... She she didn't want to overstep. So she would be caring in a lot of different ways. She had like a dormer between her garage and her house, and she would leave plates of cookies and a phone that dormer specifically for my sister and i so that we would just and there was always like soda out there and drink some water and some because she knew we didn't have anything at home and so i would go over at all hours of the night and call the bar to try and figure out which one of the four bars in our tiny little town my mom was at at that hour so i got quite used to calling up, they, they, they would stop answering because they'd know who I was when I was calling. And so it was, it was a weird, I got super protective. People would come around, she'd bring, you know, this is a guy I'm dating or something around. And I would be like the, (laughs) like the angsty teeners, like, what are you going to do with my, what are your intentions with my mother? You know, that type of, I'm the man of this house type of uh, attitude. So
0: did your dad try to step in or help or provide any sanctuary?
1: You know, for the longest time, and i uh, probably up until I was about 32, 33, someone there. I, I actually, that was the, the most anger I had for my father was that he just left. He moved He moved to Mishawaka, Elkhart area, which is from, from LaGrange where we lived about an hour. Um, so he moved to a place where I couldn't ride my bike to his house. I couldn't, there was no emergency aspect to it you know, if anything hit the fan, he was not the one I could call. And he yeah. moved, not only did he move there and that he moved there and he started dating the woman that is now my stepmom right. and they have new this family. whole new life thing going. Yeah. And so it just, it, you know, is, that was, the, I had so much resent for that piece of it. What I didn't know was that he had actually, he did that so that he could gain some separation from her.
0: Right. He didn't want to be in the same town with all the stuff going on. and
1: He didn't want to try to control her anymore. And he realized that he had to, for his detriment, for his mental health, he had to walk away from it. Um, It's probably the the biggest EQ thing that I know that my father's done um, is that he moved away from that so that he could manage it for himself and grow himself. And he employed my aunt to kind of watch over and let him like know if guys. anything bad happened. Yeah, so in retrospect, <laughs> he did some good things with that. But uh, as a kid, I was just pissed. I was so yeah. mad at him for yeah. for leaving.
0: Your mom eventually gets sick and and passes away, and you uncover. Which often happens, these repressed memories from your childhood. Can, can you take me through that process? What that was like?
1: My mom called me, so I went to school for medicine, and then I was a medic um, for a while. So I kind of have this background in, you know, the human body. And so my mom called me, and she's we're having one of our normal like. You know, every couple of week conversations, just talking about stuff. And at this point, she had she had moved to Florida. My dad at one point moved down to Florida with my stepmom. My sister wanted to go down there too, and so like my whole family ended up back in Florida. And I'm literally the only one left up here. She's down in Florida. She's she says she says you know I I don't really want to tell you all this stuff, but I, I want to talk to you about this because you know a lot about this stuff, and I I just don't know what what it is. And it's okay. And she, she told me that she had a, a urinary tract infection for like eight months. Like oh, it gosh. wouldn't, yeah, it wouldn't go away.
0: Every woman who's listening to this, they just cringed up. It's the worst. Oh, yeah. <laughs>
1: Yeah. And, and, and to, to make things even more weird, she was, she had gotten a full hysterectomy in like, in like, at like 34, 35 years old. And so she had no reason she didn't have a, you know, a menstrual cycle. She didn't have a reason to really have that piece of it, but she was, she was also bleeding. Like she was, and she described it to me, like, I feel like I started my cycle again. And I'm like, yeah, that's.
0: You need to get that checked out.
1: Yeah. And so at that point she was already on. So after she kind of went through recovery. And so she ended up, on disability because she just kind of went into this social anxiety state where she just couldn't be around people ever. And so she was on she was on on Medicaid and so because of that they they're notorious for not actually like trying to take care of the problem. They're notorious for just like put a band-aid on it and carry on. Yeah. So what was happening was she was going to her doctor and her doctor was like, "You have a urinary tract infection, here's cranberry pills, have a nice day." And she would end up, she ended up having this urinary tract infection for 8 months. We, uh, we, I talked her into going and doing a, an MRI at one of the like, uh, mobile trucks just South of her in one of the cities down there. And she went down there and did it. We paid out of pocket for it. And, um, she had a bladder tumor that was the size of her bladder essentially. They started talking to her about options, and she went to an oncologist. and She had the choice of either starting chemotherapy regimen and possibly keeping her bladder, or just getting her bladder pulled at that point and having a neo bladder, a prosthetic bladder, put in. And you know, and I tried to talk her, "Don't do the chemo, don't do the chemo," because it'll, it'll destroy your your immune system, and you won't be able to do the surgery. And I was, and but I I know she was scared, and so she went with the chemotherapy and by the time they were able to do the surgery, it had already, it had already, uh, spread. So
0: tell me more about that. Tell me more about that experience.
1: Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I say now, and I've, I've actually told my friends this, like just hit me with a truck. I don't want to, I don't want to deteriorate. She was, she was 18 months of, uh, of deterioration just to her body breaking down and everything just whittling away. That's, it's, there's, there's something great about it because you get the chance to say goodbye, Yeah. but, but there's, there's nothing that can prepare you for watching somebody just turn to dust. You know,
0: how does that fit into, so your mom, she abandons all these things and you take care of your sister, do you know, you walk us through this, this addiction, what, this is what addiction looks like. Right. And there's violence, there's all sorts of things going on. So a lot of times people have, they, with the person, they have a lot of resentment and anger around a parent or someone who's hurt them, right? A parent, sibling, whatever it is. And there's yeah. this conflict of, I well, I can't, Talk about we can't talk about the dead in a in a in a way that's unkind or you know you, we have this desire to immortalize people in a positive way that, that that have passed. These two things are true at the same time, right? That that you were abandoned. There's resentment. There's anger. There's loss of childhood, and then you lose mom. What? How did you get through these two? Th- how did you get through this transition of? oh my gosh, like I'm so angry at you too. Oh my gosh, I'm I, come back.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, if I'm being hundred percent honest, I didn't, Yeah. I didn't get through that piece, but I, I, I did have the chance, luckily, very luckily. Um, and I actually, it sounds so morbid now, but I actually recorded the conversation with her. Um, I told her I was going to record it because I wanted it. I wanted to keep it. Yeah. Um, but I sat down with her with an iPad in front of us and I recorded about an hour and a half long conversation Wow. where we just, where we just talked about all of it.
0: That's really cool.
1: Yeah. And I, I, I reflect back on it fairly often just to, just to kind of give myself a reminder that we did have those conversations. Cause I mean, when she passed, it was like a, It was like a floodgate. I started regurgitating memories that I had suppressed that I didn't even know I suppressed that I was like, did that even happen? Because there's like, there's that like weird rigmarole that happens in your head where you're like, like the Tupperware, like, did, was he holding Tupperware? Like, it just, all these things that you're like, did I actually do that? Did I? The first time I ever drove, I drove a car with my mom, her boyfriend, my uncle, Jeff, my aunt and her best friend, Patty in the backseat. And there were drugs in the car and everyone was drunk and I was driving them home from the bar. And so I legitimately had to go, did I do that? Was that, was that real for me? So that was part of the conversation was touching on some of those things. But then after she passed it, it unleashed even more like some things that, that I wish I would have, I would have talked to her about, but I. I had I had blocked them out completely. Like what so were some was, of the
0: what were some of the things that the repressed memories that come back that came back to you.
1: I mean there were a lot of things there were things like um uh, we would have our, our electricity was turned off and it's so she would kind of alternate between paying the gas bill and paying the electric bill which you do I guess when you only have so much money. And so sometimes we would have electricity, sometimes we would have heat and it would kind of bounce back and forth. So there were things like, um, like bundling up with my sister in one bed with every blanket in the house because we are in Indiana in the wintertime with no heat. Helping my sister be able to have hot water so that she can bathe. We don't have any gas, which is how we hot, do the hot water. So my brilliant 15-year-old self was like, you know what? I'll heat up water in the coffee maker. Probably the worst memory that came back was there. My mom got, had met a guy I don't I don't know his name. I don't know anything about him. I just have a picture of him in my head that I've had since I was a kid. And I'm six foot one. He was probably five, six, five, seven. So substantially smaller than me in frame. And I just remember being my, my, the house was, you know, a a ranch style house. And my Mm -hmm. bedroom was on the west side of the house. And my mom's bedroom was on the east side of the house. And I just remember it being like two o'clock in the morning. I woke up, I heard her. We had a glass door. A, a wood door with glass panes of, of like window panes that went from the garage to the house. And that was literally just outside my bedroom. So I kind of developed this sleeping but not sleeping thing where I don't really sleep, but I sleep and I can hear everything. And so I could, I heard her come in and I heard her laughing and I heard somebody else laughing. I'm like, okay, whatever. At, the, at that point, I was like, yeah, no, okay, yeah. there we go. <laughs> and uh, And I heard them make their way back to the bedroom cool i'm gonna go to sleep and then i started hearing her scream uh get off me no stop it you know i do not remember I've, I've tried to remember what happened but all but the only thing i can really recollect out of it is that i was standing in the front yard over the top of him after i had uh, pretty much beat the shit out of him i pulled him off of my mom and drug him outside and he was laying in the front yard and neighbors were out they were all trying to figure out what's going on and Maxine, the lady that I said that lived next door to us was, had already called the police. And I don't, I, I never got in trouble for it. I never, anything yeah. like that. Um, she never pressed charges on him. He never pressed charges on me. We just carried on from there. But that's, that's probably the worst memory that came out where I was just like, oh, shit, I, did I, and again, it was like, did I do that? And I had right. to like, right. I had to ask, I had to ask my family, like, is this something that was real? And my mom, my mom wasn't around to tell me whether or not it was real, but luckily my aunt was. So.
0: So all of this stuff comes up. Do you seek any help? What What's going on with with the food coping?
1: I I got real, real, real sad. And I, <laughs> I guess that's the best way to say it. I mean, yeah, you lose your mom, you get sad. I just kept eating. I kept eating and I kept adding in things that I swore I would never add in. So I started coping with edibles and um, alcohol was also part of it. But I wasn't, I, I found justifications in it because I wasn't, getting high all the time, I was just getting high when I had anxiety. And I wasn't drinking all the time. I was just drinking when I was with friends. And I was so I just kept justifying in different ways. And um both of those things involve food. Like it's just and it and it all came back to food. I would get I would eat an edible and then I would eat way too much food. And and um you know it, it just I found myself getting More and more into a part where I was lethargic and I didn't feel good. And I noticed like substantial sleeping issues, even though I've always had, you know, that sleeping uh, mechanism that I created when I was a kid, the food just kind of took over and it became the thing that I would lean on. And I found myself like sitting in drive-through parking lots, eating enough food for three people for no reason whatsoever. And then, you know, leaving there and going for no reason. Well, just you know, at the time it was like, yeah. why am I doing this to myself? Right. And then driving home and and making dinner and yeah. eating and eating dinner with my kid. And uh, so yeah, it was it was just I was compounding it, and I found like comfort in the weirdest things. I found comfort comfort in the bubbles in soda. You know, the carbonation. So it, grabbing a hold of that piece of it was probably the hardest thing I've ever done. But I, I, that video that I was talking about with my mom, I actually, at the end of it, I asked her, you know, what she wanted from me. And I was like, it's, I know that that's kind of a weird question to ask somebody who's dying, but like part of your, part of your legacy is me, you know? Right. So I, I want to make sure that I honor that. So what do you want from me? And she's like, you got to take care of yourself. You got to, you got to fix the weight. You got to, you got to be healthy and be happy and stop beating yourself up. And I went, Okay.
0: Stay tuned to hear more in just a moment. Hello, beautiful people. If you're listening to the show, you're a part of my community, and I'm so appreciative of that. And if you've been listening for a while and thinking, how can I get more connected? Where can I find more people like me? I want to talk to you about LionRock.life. LionRock.life is a community aimed at providing support to people just like you and me. They offer 70-plus support group meetings a week for folks in recovery, as well as adult children of alcoholics and addicts, those who are struggling with anger or deep in their grief, and many more topics like these. Each group is different with peer support facilitators bringing their unique style to every support group meeting. Facilitators range from licensed counselors, trained peer support providers, and people with the best heart, soul and powerful, relatable experiences. Everyone is accepted into our community, no matter where they are in life and no matter what they're doing in the process or what they're recovering from. Because you listen to this show, we'd like to offer you one month free to try it out. All you need to do is go to lionrock.life or download the Lion Rock Life app, create an account, and at the checkout, enter the promo code COURAGE. That's lionrock.life and enter promo code courage to try it free for yourself for one month. And now back to the show.
1: I found myself at like this apex of like eating because I was so sad and I had all of this trauma crap that was just regurgitating yeah. and I didn't know how to, so I, yeah, just, oh, I'm sad. Another sandwich or another thing. And uh, yeah, just uh, one thing after another. other. So I, I was like 420 pounds. <laughs> wow.
0: How did that feel being 420 pounds?
1: Oh my goodness. You can't fit into anything. You know, I couldn't find clothes anywhere. I felt uncomfortable in my own skin. I didn't feel like myself. I look in the mirror and you don't feel like yourself. But then the worst part was the shame part of it because you run into somebody that you haven't seen in like six months. Yep. And you know in your head that you've gained 60 mm-hmm. pounds in that six months and that they can absolutely see it. Just the shame piece, and I, I play music. I'm always in front of people, and yep. and I'm always in front of a crowd. And there was this like I got to the point where I didn't want to play gigs. I didn't want to go to the grocery store. I didn't want to go to my daughter's softball, t-ball stuff. I just I didn't want to be out of the house. So that was the point where I I stopped, and I had to I had to do something about it.
0: I think you know as you and I have talked about this before because we work together. For people who don't know it, and and this is something I deeply deeply relate to. Which is just this shame. And as someone who's also in front of people, cameras, whatever, what I always think to myself is I wear my trauma. You know, a lot of people, even when you're using drugs and alcohol, like you can put on a ton of makeup, spray some cologne. I mean, sometimes you can't hide it, but you can attempt. Like you is certainly in the early days, you can attempt. But like when you have an eating problem, every ounce of it is. Is public. It keeps you from living a life because you don't want your trauma, your issues, you don't want to be out wearing them. And that's what it feels like. It feels, you feel so seen all the time, like it, like it, like you're naked. And it's just, it's such a horrible feeling. And that I just, I relate to. And, and yet, you know, and the world, the judgment from other people, like you can see it in their face. You can see it, like you can read their mind. It's the weirdest. And and I've been a person as you have, which we'll talk about. I've been a person in a right size body. I know the difference. Like I know what the yeah. world, I know how different the world is and how different I am. And we become different people. And it's very much as someone who's been in active substance addiction, food addiction is no joke. And it is very, it is equally as seductive and in some ways more seductive more insidious because you have to interact with it every day but someone yeah. once told me someone once told me you know you know we always talk about like oh poor f- people with food issues you have to eat 3 times a day you don't have to drink 3 times a day and uh, someone once said no you don't have to drink alcohol but you have to drink liquids and it's the same with food you know you're not binging on lettuce you're not binging on broccoli. You're not binging on these things. It's the same thing. You do not have to eat addictive foods the same way you don't have to drink addictive drinks. And and that sort of changed my mindset because I did a lot of feeling sorry for myself about like, well, people don't understand because you have to interact with food three times a day. You can just stop drinking. And the truth is like, we don't stop drinking liquid, really the same thing.
1: Yeah. There was this really kind of like small moment in my life that was really definitive. A watershed moment for me that that actually taught me that exact thing. And it was, I used to give my mom so much shit because she would she was a smoker and she would have a cigarette and mm. she didn't like the way it tasted. She didn't like the way that it made her smell. Yep. She would smoke a cigarette and then she'd eat a piece of gum and then she'd actually wash her hands. Yep. And I used to I used to I remember being like 15, 16 years old and be like, Mom, why do you even do that anymore? Like yeah. you don't even like it. Why do you do that to yourself? And I remember being so just like upset with her that she couldn't see how blatant it was. Right. And then I was sitting in the parking lot, eating three people's worth of food. And I was going, it was my lunch break at work and I was going to go back to work. And I finished eating this unsurmountable amount about food and sanitized my hands, popped in a piece of gum, sprayed on some cologne. And I went, Oh shit, you hypocrite
0: there are a lot of rules we make, right. Like about, around these substances. Yeah. And the reality is, as, as you know, you can talk more about, which is it's about how you
1: feel. It's about how it makes you feel. That was the transition piece for me really, because I, I didn't even know, I didn't remember what happiness really looked like. I knew that I had, I had a daughter and I knew happiness in that level. And I had been, I had been married. And at that point, um, already already divorced but I, I we had a really great relationship we still have a really great relationship and we work we co-parent really well so i i knew happiness and all these really kind of transient forms that didn't really all line up but i had no idea what cohesive emotional stability looked like in myself at all
0: how did you find that
1: um i started talking i got i went <laughs> i was standing in line at a pizza place <laughs> which is which is irony in its finest and i started I was standing there and I heard somebody behind me call me Billy. And like I said earlier, Billy was my childhood name. Once I got to the point of an adult, I was like, call me Will. I'm not Billy anymore. I heard Billy and I turned around and I was like, oh my goodness. And it was this friend of mine from high school that that I, I, was, I was friends with, but I wasn't like super close with. We were just acquaintances. And I was like, oh my goodness, how are you? And I, the shame, 420 pounds mm. and I'm in a pizza line, right?
0: Right, right, right.
1: I have to commend her. She did something that most people do not do. Um, Most people don't um, step out on a ledge because they're afraid they'll probably piss somebody off or offend them. And she was a running coach, like runs Boston marathons, runs all over the world, a professional runner. And she was part of this program that was a weight loss program for people. And she was like, Hey, you know, I know it's not really my place to say anything, but um, I think you should check this out. Just check, just check out this website. It would be really great to have you and your personality because I'm, I am, Once I'm motivated on something, like I drive for it. And, and yeah. she, she knew me enough to know that piece of it. So she's like, I, th- I think you should. I think you should be a part of it. And I'm like, okay, I'm gonna go eat my pizza in my car. And I went <laughs> to my car, <laughs> and ate my pizza while looking at this weight loss program on my phone on the internet. That, and,
0: as we do, you know, so yeah. right. Really
1: cool. <laughs> and I'm just like, oh my gosh, I do qualify <laughs> for really this, do this food. Yeah. I should really take advantage of this opportunity. Again, justifying. I got the margarita pizza, so it's not as bad, but I, you know, I I looked at the program and it was a, it was this like, um, kind of like the biggest loser type of program. It was, it was considered a competition and, and it was, it was all about just trying to get you moving and get you to understand the educational piece of it. But the part that really set the, the set the difference for me, learning the physical activity piece of it was huge. I never knew how to exercise. Like, Mm -hmm. I don't know how to do that. I don't know how to run. I don't know how to do any of these things. I just, you know, you go to the gym and it hurts. Like, that's what it feels like. And so <laughs> they taught you how to exercise properly, how to do a squat properly, how to run properly, those things. But the part that really set it apart was the food psychology piece. We had a uh, therapist that was part of it and you could ask her questions. Um, you could have one-on-ones with her. And it really helped me tackle that. The ther- the food therapist that was part of it um, was just so good at at just adding little like anecdotes that would help you understand why you're doing things. And there, there was lots of rules. Like you're not allowed to eat this. You're not allowed to eat this, but you can eat this. And so me being the inquisitive person that I am, I was like, well, wait a minute, I can eat an English muffin, but I can't have white bread. That doesn't make any sense. And she had this like really innate ability to be able to break it down to a point that made you go, Oh, okay. Well, yeah, it's not about the food necessarily. It's about the why behind the food. And so she had this, this really uh, great way of grasping those things. And, and it helped me, It helped me understand. How food is fuel, how food is is not supposed to be your coping mechanism. I would be lying if I said I don't still struggle with it. I mean, you know that, you and I've talked about that before. I still struggle. I still struggle with like not eating that bread or not eating the ice cream when my friends all want to go have ice cream and stuff. Yeah. Um, I struggle with those pieces. but now I have a different mindset on how it affects me, why it is, why I have to stay away from certain things. There are, no touch foods and drinks that I just can't do. I cannot be. I can't have them. They can't be near me. If they're on the table, I'll eat all of them. And and I I I tell my friends like don't. One of the things is jelly beans. Like how dumb is jelly beans? But it's
0: not. It's not dumb. <laughs> you know what mine mine are graham crackers, and it's a very specific preparation of them it's graham crackers with milk and it was a nanny a babysitter when we were little that showed me how to do this and it's very connected to childhood coping and it's like graham yeah. cracker i mean seriously it could be like why not ice cream why not cake you know why not? i mean those things whatever but like it's a very like there's something that connects us emotionally about that
1: yeah i it took me years to figure out that jelly beans the reason jelly beans <laughs> were my thing was because my grandmother, Had a jar on her table that she always had jelly beans and like Werther's originals and those little strawberry candies and stuff. So those are all of my things. And she always had, she always had soda. And like I said mm-hmm. earlier, my my neighbor would put soda in her in her right. breezeway between that's her for comfort. us. and so soda and cookies and yep. sh- sh- sugary thing. That that's where that's me. That's where it's yep. at for me. That's that is my drug of choice. I will eat four bags of jelly beans and not even blink.
0: So you did this program. You lose h- how much weight? Did you lose?
1: Um, I lost eighty eight pounds in the program, um, and I lost an, an additional seventy. 70 ish pounds, 74 pounds, something like that on top of it. So 160 pounds. And I I know I, I always feel weird giving the exact number because it fluctuates, you know. I
0: mean, even if it's give or take 150, give or take. I mean, you still <laughs> yeah. like you could just say more than a hundred and we're all
1: <laughs> It was a lot. <laughs> it was a, a lot. Quite a, quite a few pants sizes, quite a few shirt sizes. But the, the big part for me was being able to sleep and function and run and bend over and pick something up just without being out of breath
0: what was the maintenance process and 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 what's the recovery process been for you 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 know you figured out how to lose this weight you you know you you identify these are the the trigger foods what's it been like since going into this program and since doing this
1: there have been there've been some some moments of struggle with just things in general and, but it usually comes with uh, comes with territory honestly it, it's it's situational and it comes with proximity to something else. So, um, for instance, if a friend is having a Super Bowl party, Super Bowl parties are notorious for no one is eating anything healthy at a Super Bowl party except for the vegetable tray, right? So it's sliders and wings and uh, <laughs> chips and salsa and all the things that that I don't particularly want to eat. And so I, what I've learned is carrying it's It's really, really weird at first, but I carry food with me to places sometimes. Family gatherings where I know they're gonna be doing burgers and hot dogs and chips and you know cookout type of thing. I'll take a tuna steak with me or I'll take you know something like that 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 I know I can still grill and I can still participate. Mm-hmm. but i've I've changed it enough to where they don't have to go out on a limb to, to take care of me right. and do it for myself.. Right. Um, so I don't feel ashamed of any of those pieces, and I don't feel like I'm putting pressure on anybody else but just steps like that and then yeah. a lot of it really is just learning how to value yourself enough to say no but i do find myself every once in a while trying struggling to not stop and and buy food or buy mainly the sugars you know ice cream with my daughter and things like that but it's it's, it's hard because i don't want her to not ex- experience the joy of having ice cream after a bike ride on a summer day and and i know that she's going to look back And she's going to have a memory of having a bike ride with dad and going getting ice cream. And there's still that, like, I feel bad piece of it where you're like, well, I don't want her to look back and be like, but dad didn't get the ice cream because dad has a food problem. I don't want her to associate that with that memory. So I get a little thing of ice cream. and So I've taught myself how to not allow that to become the problem source and to allow it to be attached to really, really good things for me. Really great memories as opposed to trauma.
0: I think it depends like I think it's it depends on what the what the um situation is and what your relationship with the thing is like for example there are going to be over the years lots of things where you know if my kids turn out to be normal drinkers where I may you know their wedding or their whatever or some toast or whatever where they may have a drink, and I'm not going to. And and you know, one of the things that I was taught in food recovery was to be connected to the people and not the food. To focus on the connection to the people and not the food. And I, I just wrote an article about this for people in corporate situations where there's drinking, and you know, what is in my glass, what I'm eating when we're sharing a social moment together. That pe like what's actually in the cup when I'm drinking, eating. That's not relevant to our sharing together to to our connection and it's taken me a long time to to really grab hold of that and make that my own instead of cuz a lot of people like start to worry about that and i think i think we worry about Our food addiction affecting other people more than it might actually. Like, they don't actually care what we're eating. They don't like it's really more a function of logistics. Like, should I buy this thing for you at this party? I used to think that, like, you talk about bringing food. I do the same thing, frankly, in part because I'm allergic to dairy. So I have to, like, do those things. But it's interesting. People don't, once we're sitting down and eating the food or eating the thing or drinking the drink, it doesn't matter. It's like really the preparation, like, oh, should I buy it? Should I, you know, do you drink this, whatever? And if I take care of all of those things, then it doesn't end up having to be a conversation. And if it does... Usually, because the other person is struggling.
1: Yeah, that's the that's the one piece that I that I still kind of dance with. I, I I've still got to overcome that piece but I, I really do have to. There's there's still parts that I've that I've uh, tried to figure out day to day, allowing myself to have small amounts of something that I know that I shouldn't have. You know, things like that where I'm like, nope, don't do it, don't do that, don't don't go off that deep end. And and then at the same time, trying not to make the social social pieces of it weird <laughs> and when everyone's eating a burger and I'm eating a tuna steak that I grilled yeah. myself after the burgers were done but you know just things like that that's like I still have to learn to just have that just to be okay the with our dialogue just, yeah yeah, yeah. And, and like you said not let it not worry so much about the food but worry about yeah. disassociate the food and the drink from yeah. the from the social piece, yeah, that's something I'm working on. <laughs> I
0: literally ask myself, and and I'm working on it. Like I'm so far from recovered. What I work on is literally asking myself: Am I connected to the food or the people right now? And you can feel it. Like if you have food addiction, if you struggle with food, you can feel like I'm connected to like what is it? What's going on? How much is it? How much is there? How much can I eat? How much? But blah, blah, blah. like, there's like. <sighs> this exhausting dialogue going on, or am I like, it's just, oh, it's K fuck radio, like loud, you know, just yeah. blah, blah, blah. How much food da, 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 are they looking, blah, blah, blah. Are they going to think I'm fat That. you? It's like, oh my God, stop. And that's mm-hmm. the same thing that I had with drugs and alcohol. It's, it's incredible. As someone who's experienced both, like I'm telling you, it is the same piece of my brain that does. And it it feels so similar. Like I I used to, I don't know if you've had this experience. Like if I knew I was at my parents' house and if I knew there was like a cake in the house, right? It was someone's birthday and it was leftover cake. It's in the kitchen, it's in the fridge. And I lived in the same house and I would come home and I would know if there were, if I had extra cocaine in the house, extra, haha, extra cocaine in the house or heroin or whatever. Like if I walk in the door, if I had it stashed somewhere, my brain, the moment I walk through those doors, is thinking about those two things exactly. Like it's, I, when I first like, I was like, holy shit, it is immediately like, when can I get it? Who's, Around what's watching it? Will they see me do it? How much is it? Will they notice it's gone? You know, with the drugs, it was. When can I get it? How much can I do? Will they notice I'm high? Blah 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 blah. Like all these things. Immediately, couldn't believe how how similar it was. And and that's those are some of the things that started to get me to take it more seriously. As like this is not just like this is not just overeating. This is not just like this is something in my head. I'm still anesthetizing, and it doesn't feel sober.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I I find myself doing that a little, like, not now, but I used to find myself doing that all the time. I would make excuses to go to the kitchen. Like, I'll, you know, do you need something to drink? Let me go you something. Like, just so you could walk past the party tray again and Mm -hmm. grab another thing. Yeah, all the time, immediately trying to calculate also uh, I've heard of I've heard friends and acquaintances of mine that are that have had drinking problems um, say that they've done beer math or alcohol math so you have this much money you know how much alcohol you can do I have quite literally done the same thing with food math. like yeah food math for sure like I've got 10 bucks to get lunch how what is the largest amount of of food I can get yeah. and drink I can get for that ten dollars yeah. and like eating things that you don't even want to eat just specifically because it's part of
0: oh, where you're like, I have to finish this to get to the next to the next like course yeah. or to the to eat the desserts like, girl, just eat the dessert. Like stop, you know <laughs> yeah. whatever you're doing. you're gonna hurt yourself, like or um eating like sugar that you don't like, but it's sugar, so you're eating it.
1: That's the I, I always take that back to the principle of making me eating those damn green beans. But that's <laughs> like, I, I, I'll eat the green beans so that I can go out to the playground. Like that's in my head. I'm still doing that. Like I have right. to eat, I have to eat all of this stuff so that I can, I can feel yeah, satiated too. with my $10 spend, you know? And right. then you add the poverty piece to it. So then on top of it, I also have like poverty, real legit poverty spending issues where I will not buy myself a thing. I don't buy myself clothes. I don't and I still struggle with all of that stuff because of because of the trauma of it. Like I, I don't feel like I am allowed to have a nicer car or I'm allowed to have mm-hmm. nice clothes or or any of those things. But I'll do, I mean I'll drop a thousand dollars on my daughter tomorrow. Like I'll, I'll take care of her, but myself, (laughs) so food and the the spending part, both not a good combination.
0: (laughs) You, you ended up doing some really cool uh, grief work and you ended, you've, you've done some stuff where you, uh, are helping other people and became a grief facilitator. How did you get into working with others?
1: Yeah. Um, so I, I actually was dating someone that worked, uh, that worked, that did some facilitation and brief work and, um, just in conversation with her and telling her all the things that, that I had gone through, she's like, you really should try this, you know, go be a part of this. And I'd always, I'd always kind of found myself talking to young, younger kids and being kind of like a mentor for kids. My, my, uh, my ex-wife's brother was 10 years younger than her. And so I kind of had this like big brother type of thing. I was a part of big brothers, big sisters for a while. Um, So I've always, I've always kind of had that in me. And I think it again, reflects back to, yeah, I was a medic, even that piece, but I, I, I always like, it reflects back to that. I, I was by myself in this like world of trauma when I, from the age of 14 until I was an adult. And so I kind of, I know there are other kids that are going through that. So how can I? How can I help them? So I went and, and uh, joined this this grief house and learned how to facilitate. And I was helping with teens, and that led to me going and working for the school system here locally at one of the great school, a fantastic school. But they had a, a lot of kids that just needed someone to talk to. You know, um, so I got involved with all those things and just trying to give back to the community a little bit while I was learning a lot about myself as well and dealing with my own grief and uh, learning to process all of these moving parts with my new body um, <laughs> that I did not know how to function. I'd never really been it, it's such a weird thing. I'd never been hit on before. Like, but then all of a sudden you have this new body and you get hit on and you're like, the hell is that? Like is that a thing? That's a thing. People do that. And so I was learning about all of those moving parts and at the same time, as I always have just trying to focus on someone else instead of focusing on me. So COVID kind of shut all that down. So I haven't been back since since that started, but I still, I love it. I'll go to the mall and I'll hear, Hey, Mr. C. And I'm like, Oh, it's, you know, one of the kids. It's great to see people that you've, that you've had some sort of positive inf- influence on along the way. It's been humbling to say the least, to be a part of that and be a part of that for kids.
0: Yeah. If there are people out there with teens who they think may benefit from, from, you know, some sort of grief counseling peer mentorship. Is that something that you're open to talking to people about?
1: Absolutely. There's no true level of certification for, you know, to say that you're a certified grief counselor. I don't have that. I was trained through the facility that I worked for. And but I can I can tell you where, what the benefits would look like. I can help you find resources for it. I think people are scared of that piece a lot of times. They're scared of what's this going to uncover for the or the is is the kid going to like it? But man, there's so many kids that have lost a parent, whether it be to a car accident or cancer or addiction. People and and the other parent is struggling because they lost yeah. somebody too. Yeah. you know, even, even in divorce situations or
0: even a divorce. Yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah. It's just, there, there, there's so much loss in those pieces and it's just not be, it, it doesn't get dealt with because in my opinion at 80% of the time, it's out of fear. They're just scared of what could come from it, or they don't know how to approach it. And they're scared to approach it because they don't want to mess it up. The worst thing you can do is not, not approach it. If you completely ignore it and just allow it to become suppressed, that's, that's the absolute worst. So yeah. yeah, they can anyone can reach out to me on that and I will be happy to help them find a resource. Where can people reach out to you? Well, so I have uh, my, my social media page. Facebook is the biggest one and I have a music page. So it's Will Certain Music. You can find me on there. They can reach out to me there and I can help them um, with any of these things. Or hey, if you want to come see me play music, you can do that too. If you're in Indiana. If you're
0: <laughs> Will, so it's yeah. Will, W-I-L-L, Certain, C-E-R-T-A-I-N, Music.
1: Yep. And then uh, email is just a Gmail. It's WillCertainMusic at gmail.com. Awesome.
0: Awesome! Yeah, check out Will's an incredible musician. Beautiful, beautiful voice. I know you won't you won't uh, promote <laughs> your own music, but I will for you. Um, it's incredible. So Thank definitely you. check out Will's certain music and um, reach out to him if you have questions.
1: Yeah, if if I if I had you know one last piece to add that yes. the only the thing that helps me most or has helped me most in my recovery from food is to know that other people can not only come to me if they need to, or but I can come to them. So having that piece, but also just the conversation, just the conversation across the board. So seriously, anyone that's out there that's listening to this, if, if you feel shame eating food in any instance, and you just want to express it, just send, I, I, I you don't even need me to respond. You don't, I, whatever you would like, just to be able to say it is so powerful Yeah, please do. And Ashley, to you, thank you for being a sounding board uh, for me as well. I appreciate you being the person that I can say, hey, I'm (laughs) going to eat this whole cake. Please tell me I should not eat this cake. I'm it's, uh, what kind? <laughs> yeah. it's so cool. It's so cool to work for a company that, uh, where you can say like, I've got a lot of anxiety today, or I've got, I'm not feeling good today mm-hmm. and have a company really support you in that piece and have a, have <laughs> yeah, a like leadership team. That are, <laughs> yeah. They're like, go home. You're like, I'm already, I'm already home. I don't, yeah, <laughs> but, yeah. so I appreciate you. And I appreciate the team because of that as well.
0: Likewise, likewise. Well, thank you so much, Will. Will Certain Music at Gmail. Will Certain Music uh, on Facebook. Check it out. Will, thank you so much.
1: Thank you.
0: This podcast is sponsored by LionRock.Life. LionRock.Life is a diverse and supportive recovery community offering weekly over 70 online peer support meetings, useful recovery information, and entertaining content. Whether you're newly sober, have many years in recovery, or you're recovering from something other than drugs and alcohol, we have space for you. Visit www.lionrock.life today and enter promo code COURAGE for one month of unlimited peer support meetings free. Find the joy in recovery at lionrock.life.